Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. Great to have you uh, with me here again this week. This is one of the free, send it out to everybody kind of editions of The Painful Truth. So glad you're able to enjoy this one. And I wanted to send this one out to everyone in particular because it's a great conversation with a very good friend of mine, Phil Colgan. About once a month here on The Painful Truth, I do a sort of Q&A chat with somebody who I think you'd really like to hear from and you'd benefit from hearing from, and Phil is certainly one of those people. He's the rector or senior minister at St. George North Anglican Church here in Sydney, and he's well known as a very insightful and powerful preacher of God's Word. And in fact, that's where I kicked off our conversation. I asked Phil what he was preaching on at the moment. Yes, it's funny. We, uh, uh, as we were coming out of lockdown, we knew, oh, we're going to be coming back in person. We've only got a few weeks left on uh, uh, online and so forth. We thought we'd do something that's just really encouraging for people, and it's proven that way. We thought we'd just preach on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I happen to have been reading Galatians in my own Bible reading, so that's where it, it flowed out of. And it's just, I've actually found incredible joy because I've just been moved to think about the way I, because I've been here 18 years in many ways, I've seen the fruit of the Spirit growing in people uh, and uh, seeing the way people grow have grown in love, have grown in gentleness, have grown in showing kindness to one another. So I've actually just found incredible encouragement because it's made me reflect on the work of God's Spirit through the teaching of His Word over over the time of our ministry here. Uh, it's a challenge as well because Galatians 5 also has that verse 25 of walk in step with the Spirit uh, or uh, follow the Spirit. But, but on the whole, it's just been really refreshing to see the way God's Spirit does His work in people. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a fruit of the Spirit that you felt challenged about as you were doing your prep? I always find when I'm prepping to teach or preach something, a dagger sometimes, or, or God willing, a dagger slips into my own heart and convicts me from the, the passage I'm reading. Have you found that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's funny. It, it has been the same couple of fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> that have, have challenged me every time I've read Galatians 5 since I've been a Christian, uh, which is patience and gentleness. They are the two that I always... And, and for, for some reason, whenever I think of patience, I can immediately have something I need to repent of within the last 24 hours in, in terms of uh, where my impatience has shown itself. Yeah. yeah. Lord, give me patience and do it quickly. Indeed. Uh, and hurry up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Phil, you're uh, St. George North. We said you're a rector, which is a very Anglican word. It's a Sydney Anglican church, St. George North, and you're a, a solid and well-known part of the fellowship of Sydney Anglicans, Sydney Anglican evangelicals here. In fact, I'd probably regard you as my friend who is probably best connected among Sydney Anglicans, almost of any of my friends I have. Like, we're all part of this fellowship, but you just seem to be one of those people who knows people who is part of the central diocesan structures a bit, like you get involved in the committee work, but you're also out and about and you know lots of ministers and you seem to have your finger on the pulse. I don't know how you do it, but you kind of do. And so I thought it would be a really helpful question to ask for the sake not only of people who are listening here in Sydney and be interested, but many of our friends all around the world who know about Sydney and its Anglican evangelicalism, the weird evangelical Anglicans that we are, in a worldwide sense anyway. What's your sense of, if you were going to do a little mini, very quick SWOT analysis of Sydney Anglicanism at the moment, what would you say, for example, are our strengths and weaknesses from your perception? Yes, yeah. Well, when you, you know, when you do a SWOT analysis and you look for those opportunities and threats and that sort of thing, and that's a helpful thing to do, um, though with something as wide and complex as a diocese, 
I sometimes wonder if it is that helpful. Sometimes I think every church should be thinking about that in their local area, which is actually a distinctive of Sydney Anglicanism, isn't it? Our congregational nature. Mm. But uh, I, I think one of the things is our opportunities, our threats, they tend to be the same at every point. They just vary by degrees. Uh, and for me at the moment, the opportunity in Sydney for ministry is the opportunity of evangelism. We have the most wonderful news in the world. There's millions of people that need saving. We have this incredible situation of an Anglican diocese with a couple of hundred churches that faithfully preach Jesus, thousands of lay people ready to serve. I think that is a singular, singularly peculiar thing in the Anglican world. And that is our opportunity. But more than that, I, I have the feeling, despite how many people talk about it, like, oh, the fields are dry and the fields are hard. I actually think we're at a point where people are more open to the gospel than at any point in my lifetime, in my Christian lifetime. Many are more antagonistic, but I think there are a small number who are represented in the, the media and so forth. In my part of Sydney, which is incredibly multicultural, I think people are just open to talking about Christian things. We're seeing loads of people connecting with us at the moment through our evangelistic efforts. And I think it's, it's a great time. And even most Westerners are not the sort of people who appear on uh, symposiums on the television or that sort of thing. Most Westerners now don't have the cultural baggage of cultural Anglicanism or cultural even Roman Catholicism. Uh, they're not immune to the gospel. They haven't been vaccinated now. And for me, that's a wonderful situation. I think we're entering... A great time so so that that's the opportunity and that's the challenge in sydney i think is to not lose sight of the main game and uh, to take that opportunity in the diocese of sydney the challenge is to mobilize our resources i think to to mobilize our lay people be focused on training and equipping lay people challenge uh, our lay people and our gospel workers but our lay people to to have the right view of this city, that it's a harvest field and that uh, as they work, even as they work, they are missionaries and they are evangelists. And uh, we just, for the Diocese of Sydney, another issue is property. Can we better use our property to reach the city? Can we have churches to plant out in these massive growth areas of, of Sydney? Um, they're the sort of things, but in the end, it's don't get distracted. That's the, keep the main game, the main game, keep putting the main game in front of people. Uh, that's that's for me the opportunity side. Yeah. What do you think we get distracted by? I think one distraction is thinking it's really hard, and and uh, and uh, and that evangelism's hard because what that often does, and I we might talk about this a bit later on, but um, is that often means you switch from bold gospel proclamation to defensive posturing, uh, which I think is a danger often in in conservative evangelical. You know, so we. We get worried about protecting our rights and protecting ourselves and that sort of thing. Uh, or we, we switch to thinking it's our job that we have to apologise for the gospel and, and so forth, rather than just getting on with that task of proclaiming Jesus. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about apologetics a little bit later on. It's one of the questions I have stored up for you. So we'll come back to apologising and apologetics. Yeah. But it, it's really interesting that you say you see the ground shifting or you feel like things are more open than they've been for a while. I saw a very interesting study uh, just last week, and I it's one of those things where I saw the top-line numbers, and so I don't know the methodology or all the details, but just the broad trend was fascinating to me. 
it was talking about how how likely someone is to respond positively to an invitation to come to church or a Christian event. And it was breaking it down um, generationally. Uh, and it was interesting, people who were baby boomers, uh, kind of people more my sort of age, the jaded ex sort of 70s people, the liberals, those kind of people of that era, they're still, you know, maybe one in four or one in five or might be positively disposed if you ask them to come along to something. But then when you jump down to the millennials or the Gen Xs, um, it jumps up to 40%, 45%, 48% of people in, in younger age groups who, as you say, don't have the baggage and the... Um, the kind of hangover of the of the sixties and seventies rebellion against conservative Christianity, um, and who know nothing about it, never met a Christian, don't know anything about Christianity, and are interested to find you're a Christian. That's interesting. Yeah. What's what's that all about? Yeah. Tell me. And I think that only increases when you the more multicultural a place is, an area is, uh, and I I think also. In changes in things like educational background of people and so forth. There's a sense to which uh, uh, often one of the interesting things about Sydney Anglicanism is we don't we've never truly reflected the the city of Sydney. We've we've reflected a more upper class, higher educated, to be frank, whiter uh, part of Sydney. And we've got to be careful of thinking that's all of Sydney. We've got to reach all of Sydney. Sydney is a very big place. I was reflecting on this the other day. It's about 5 million people or there, mm. thereabouts. I think if we kind of have a generous kind of definition, there might be, let's say there are 150,000 evangelical Christians, born-again evangelical mm. Bible-believing Christians in Sydney. Let's say that was the case. That's, by my calculations, we're kind of at the sort of, Two percent, kind of right? like we're we're at this. There's ninety eight percent of this vast great city. I think of um, I think of Nineveh, that great city, mm. uh, in which there are five million people who don't know their right hand from their left. Well, ninety eight percent of those five million. Um, not to mention the many cattle, of course, in in Nineveh, but um, not so many cattle in Sydney. A lot of cavoodles after lockdown. <laughs> If it was being written today, it would be a city of so many great persons, so many people, and much cavoodles, yeah, and many pets, many cats and dogs. Um, thanks, Phil. It is a great challenge to to think about just how many people there are, what a lost uh, city Sydney is, and how much opportunity there is for the gospel, and how much there is opportunity there. In terms of the threats to us or the weaknesses for us as Sydney Anglicans, do you have any reflections there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I... I must admit, I don't think I'd want to say weaknesses. There's always areas. I'm an optimist, but there's always areas we need to be on the lookout for and so forth. But if I was to pull down one threat, I would say it's to respond to that great need by conceding too much to our world in a desire to be relevant. I think that's always the threat. Uh, And at the moment... uh, I think that is a threat for us, and I feel that temptation every time I preach. And uh, God is sovereign, but in in my weakness, I I do fear for our next generation. I I wonder, have we been and are we preparing them well enough to stand up and believe and love biblical truth in, in a world that's now calling it evil rather than irrelevant? Uh, uh, you know, whether it's the truth that Christ alone is the way of salvation and there is no other way. 
whether it's the truth on human sexuality, whether it's the truth on gender uh, and all these other issues. So I, I do think our real, I, I see that as a threat. I, want, I, I fear sometimes that we haven't done a good enough job with that generation. And uh, I think our real challenge is to just teach those truths boldly to help our young people or our older people, for that matter, but to, to be proud of Jesus and his word. That's the word I use, to be proud of the gospel, to actually stand up and be proud of it rather than apologetic for it. Uh, uh, it is the answer, even if our world mocks it. Yeah. So I think, for me, that is the threat, to tone down your preaching rather than realise, just keep going. Uh, you Strengthen your people for the task, strengthen yourself for the task. We have a wonderful gospel. We have a, that God's word is beautiful. Let's stand up and proclaim it. Yeah, yeah it is in many ways a, a challenge of unbelief. In it, in, is it in its own sense? It's it's losing your confidence um, and boldness in the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ, and thinking that in some way we have to soften it, accommodate it, refashion it. And that instinct, look, I understand that instinct instinct as well, um, very strongly. And it's why, in the in in a sense, I'm sympathetic. Um, or empathetic, perhaps is the better phrase, to liberalism, because liberalism is that impulse. It's that sense of we're not relevant. The world is moving on. They don't believe what we believe anymore. Um, there's all these other trends. We need to adapt and shift and change. We need to jettison some of the harder-edged stuff. We need to, to conjure a message that's more respectable, more acceptable, more um, more comfortable in, in a way, one that one we, we don't feel uncomfortable to... To speak one that when we do speak it we don't feel like we're standing out and saying something radical yeah. or revolutionary that that's the impulse and i think we all feel that impulse in our hearts all the time as you say and so while, while we might kind of feel horrified about liberal theology and jettisoning the resurrection and jettisoning this and so on we say well we'll never go that far but the impulse towards it is the one you're talking about it's to accommodate and compromise in order to receive a better hearing in order to be yeah yeah being all things to all men is about how you live it's about your actions it's not about what you preach and i i think that's a useful thing we need to always remember i think it was at the nexus conference a few years ago david williams had this wonderful one-liner um, he pointed out that in 1 corinthians 1 and 2 paul was utterly and absolutely inflexible about his message in fact he says i've got all these other people who want to hear this the jews want to hear that the greeks want to hear this i don't tell them anything they want to hear i tell them this i tell them christ crucified and they think it's either weak or foolish mm. but that doesn't bother me because god uses this supposedly weak and foolish method it's his power and his wisdom so i never change the message that's all i do that's all i say right so he's utterly inflexible on his message but in his person in his behaviour, in the packaging of who he is himself, how he relates to people, he's flexible as anything, mm. uh, in order mm. because those things don't matter very much. And so uh, David Williams said, um, "You can contextualise the messenger, you don't contextualise the message. It's it's us as people who shift and change with the people we're relating to, not the message we're preaching." Which I thought was a, I think it's a wonderful a way of putting it. I think it, it actually captures the almost the logical flow of one Corinthians. It does. It, uh, yeah. They're both in the same letter, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Very good. I mentioned Nexus just now. Are you st you're still involved in. It? In fact, you've taken over from me at Nexus. For, you've, depo <laughs> you've deposed me in a boardroom coup. You have shuffled me aside, and you're now in charge of Nexus. I am. I am, and we're actually we are doing. 
uh, a Nexus refresh coming out of lockdown where Kanishka, the new Archbishop of Sydney, and I are uh, speaking uh, in early December. And praise God, uh, we can come together, people in ministry in Sydney, and uh, uh, be refreshed by God's word. And my, my hope is that what I'm going to try and speak on is actually that it's as we uh, think of the task before us, that's the most refreshing thing, to be reminded of what a great gospel we have to preach and what a privilege it is to do it. Uh, that refreshes me far more than any day off or any holiday. Yeah. Indeed. And that's really what Nexus is. For those of you who haven't heard of Nexus, it's a basically a little fellowship of Sydney evangelicals, mostly Anglicans, but uh, evangelicals in Sydney who are in gospel ministry, refreshing and pushing each other forward for this great task. So it's great that you're taking it on and pushing that forward. And I'll certainly look forward to seeing you there in December. When is it? December the... It is December the 3rd, Friday, December the 3rd. Yeah. If you just look up nexusconference.com.au, you should be able to find the details there. Okay, good. I think that's enough talking about Sydney and Sydney Anglicanism. You mentioned apologetics in the midst of all that. And every now and then, Phil, when I put out a painful truth, you very kindly zip me a little email. And after I did that little series on apologetics a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, you, you wrote in with some enthusiasm. This is, a, this is a subject of yours that you're exercised on. What's important about apologetics or, or what's wrong with apologetics in your view? Well, yeah, I, I loved what you said. And for those who haven't read it, I encourage you to read the two uh, painful truths that Tony put out on it because you crystallise something for me I've been blundering around on for some time where uh, I'm all for apologetics in some senses, but some modern apologetics makes me feel really uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I've been trying to work out why that is, uh, but Tony... In those, he came up with seven different types of what we might call apologetics. Uh, I think you crystallise something there, uh, and in particular, what you crystallise for me is that whatever apologetics is, and there are things that it is, it's not or it shouldn't be trying to make the gospel seem rational and reasonable to a person with a worldly worldview. Uh, that that's the point I got out of it, and and and. Uh, uh, and you've mentioned 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 already. And in fact, the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians with that, the, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That shows you that as you preach the gospel, if, if a person hasn't had their worldview transformed by the word through the spirit, they are going to think it's foolishness. So it should never be our intention to make a person who doesn't come to trust in Jesus think we are rational. Uh, and, and that's where, so one of your, categories of apologetics was what you called positive apologetics. And uh, I found that a really helpful category. And you saw that some positive, positives, some positive apologetics, uh, showing how good and attractive the gospel is, showing how the gospel makes sense of the world. And there's a helpful endeavor. But, but the thing is that the gospel will never be seen as good for you if you think this world is all there is. Uh, you can't make a person think the gospel is good for you if this world is is the end and there is no God, it's only when you accept there is a God who is righteous, who created the world, when you accept that there is a heaven and a hell, uh, that the gospel is good. Otherwise, it's foolishness. So any apologetics that's trying to say the gospel is good for you, even if you don't share our worldview, I, I think has missed the point. So I, I, out of your thing, it just sent me back yet again to 1 Peter 2, which for me is just the key passage of the scriptures on, on this question. And in, in particular, 1 Peter 2 verse 12, 
I've got my Bible open on that page, you'll be pleased to know, but uh, where it says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. And as you look at that, and then the flow through to being ready to give a reason for your hope, and so on and so forth in the argument, the argument is, the greatest apologetic is living a godly life. That's... That's the argument of 1 Peter. As you live out a godly life, you're also setting out the gospel plainly. You're giving a reason for your hope. Uh, but what 1 Peter shows you is they won't understand you. They will call you evil and you'll reason with people, what you called, I think, responsive apologetics or something like that. You'll reason with people. You'll then try to show the rationality of the gospel, the historical base, whatever it is. And you'll always do that with gentleness and with respect. 1 Peter makes that very clear. But verse 12 and 1 Corinthians, show, as you alluded to, 1 and 2, show you someone who then doesn't repent and believe is unlikely to think you're rational and is unlikely to think you're reasonable. And, and that's where I want us to say, what you should be, what Christians should be in our world is a conundrum to people. Uh, it's a conundrum to people where, on the one hand, they go, he's, ir he's irrational, his logic doesn't seem to work, he believes in a guy who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago and says he's the answer to everything. He's a bit crazy, but he's so gracious, and he is so gentle, and he is so loving, and he is so patient, as I said before, God willing, that I can't help but want to listen to him. Uh, but you see, when we try and remove the conundrum by trying to make it rational, it's actually as bad as removing the conundrum by not being likable, <laughs> by, by not being gentle, by not being gracious. We've got to do the two. You saw that a bit in the Israel Folau thing, and I'm not saying his presentation was the best way to present it and so forth. There's issues there, but that's, we've had those debates. Don't worry about it. But, uh, but I just do remember hearing from a couple of his football-playing colleagues, and they said to him, but this isn't the Israel Folau I know. He's just the nicest guy. And I thought, that's it. That's the conundrum of the gospel. Unfortunately, it got played out in social media. But uh, that, that was capturing the conundrum. Here is a guy bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So they, even though they accuse you of evil, they say, gee, they're doing good. And yet you're a conundrum because you believe and say things I can't agree with because I haven't yet come to understand the world through Jesus' eyes. Yeah. yeah, I haven't yet come to see the reality that, that drives that behavior. I mm. see behavior. I sometimes will approve of it. I sometimes will disapprove of it because sometimes the behavior will be driven by that understanding of the world that I don't share. Mm. But that kind of dual way of thinking about the the behavior of people and what they say, in, in the end, it is only resolved on the day of visitation, isn't it? Finally, at that time, that's when they sense they'll see our good works and glorify Although we, we, God finally. We pray a, they resolve the conundrum prior to the day of visitation because we give absolutely. them a reason for our hope and they come to know Christ. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the theme's carried through in 1 Peter. You find it further on in chapter 4 as well, where where that sense of them being surprised and kind of mocking you for not jumping in with them into the flood mm. of pleasure and dissipation mm. they're part of. Yep. We shouldn't be surprised that that's the case yeah. as well. Yeah, mm. uh, That's really helpful. Yeah, in the whole discussion about apologetics and in interestingly in thinking about two ways to live and the gospel a lot over the past six, nine months, 12 months, it has really come home to me how we've sort of got it all kind of back the front so much in our apologetic and evangelistic kind of approach that so often these days 
we spend ages on the kind on the softening up period you know on trying to kind of connect with people gain traction for ideas present some metaphors that might connect with them find some common ground say ways in which the gospel is good all kinds of things to sort of try to kind of ease them up towards the terrible moment when we give them the bad news that this is the gospel that that is Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead it's it strikes me we've got that just the wrong way around we'd be much better if we led with Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the gospel and in light, and in light of our good behavior and in light of our reputation for being the kind of people who live differently we then tease through their questions and answer their questions and respond and interact and explain and and do in a sense the responsive dialogue style of interaction having told them what the gospel is that that makes all the difference uh, and, rather than keeping that in reserve for some future point where we might eventually get to telling them and that and that's but that's even harder and i think what you're saying is absolutely right in what i'd call the personal sphere i don't have the answers for the public sphere where you only get a soundbite and sometimes the soundbite you you to, you want to give is just to commend the gospel i don't i don't want to you know stand in judgment on on and that's why i'm very slow to judge anyone who gets lauded or pillared by the media you, you know or, the, or by the world in that sense it's a very artificial environment yeah, isn't it yeah but i think if we have that attitude of, of what is first and foremost important so i, I had another thought out, out of it which is and it's just a thought bubble for me at the moment and maybe people will respond to this podcast and say no that's not helpful and i'll, I'll repent but um uh, i as you got to your final category of prosecution or category, or as you called it, or category, or however you pronounce it, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think we do enough of that in our preaching. I fear if we do too much of the other types of apologetics in our preaching, if we do too much apologizing, that you actually create a church that's in constant need of being argued into its faith. Uh, and I, I think that's a a bit of a danger, and I, I think our preaching should go more on the offensive, more prosecutorial. Uh, and it goes back to what I said before, we should be prouder of the gospel. And, and so I, I think a, more of our preaching should say, brothers and sisters, this is what you believe. Isn't it wonderful? Look at how foolish our world is. Look at how much better our worldview is than our worlds. Uh, and I wonder if we did more of that, if we'd prepare our, our people better to be not apologizing for the gospel, but ready to express the power of the gospel to, to sort of crack through to the world. Yeah, yeah. it's just a thought mm -hmm. bubble I've, I've got. Uh, I've got to be careful though, it's not just about rationalizing my personality. Which, your... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your belligerent personality, <laughs> Phil. Yeah, possibly. I, I think we always have to be careful of, of um, rationalizing our, our proclivities yeah. towards particular kinds of approach. It does strike me though that Really, that's kind of what Paul is doing in Acts 17, where we have, I mean, everyone goes to Acts 17 and it's a bit of a happy hunting ground and perhaps we try and ring too much about out of this one sermon. But it it is kind of his approach. He, he starts by interacting with them, but it becomes a cultural critique very quickly. Oh. Uh, and it's quite eviscerating, really, in terms of what their religious practice is and how hopeless it is and how irrational it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, as he then presents... Uh, who Jesus really is and why it's time to stop all this nonsense and repent before this one who's now God's judge of all. Yes, he uses the common ground of the idol for the unknown God <laughs> to get into it. But then he very quickly mocks that unknown God and uh, mocks idolatry and uh, mm. uh, mocks might be the wrong word, but you, 
it's certainly not. It's a defensive. strong critique at the very least. It's not no, defensive. No. Yeah. No, nor is it an attempt to argue his way from that to the mm. gospel. Mm. It's a it's a clearing of the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, thanks for answering those questions. Now, part of the format of of this thing is that you also get to ask me questions. So, have you got anything that you're wanting to throw at me at the moment? Well, I, yeah. I uh, as I thought about that, I thought, well, Tony's my book guy. You know, so he's a He's one of the few people I know who is a genuinely published author, you know, and uh, that sort of thing. So I thought, uh, not including your own books, is there, or perhaps you can, I don't care, but is is there a book you would want everyone to read? What would it be for pastors and then for people in our churches? What would be the one book you'd say you must read this? Oh, gee, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> Because sometimes the things that I have read that have been really transformative in my thinking and that I think are the most profound and important books, sometimes they're a bit odd or hard to read. So for me, I always, my default has been that when I read Resurrection and Moral Order by Oliver O'Donovan in third year at Moore College, it blew open a whole series of doors for me and and opened up a whole set of thoughts that I'd never thought before. And, and it was probably just in terms of a, a single book, the most influential thing I've read. But it's not the one. I wouldn't say every pastor must go out and read that. Um, if I did, there'd be a lot of people in therapy shortly thereafter. <laughs> it's, it's just the most dense and difficult book. Um, the one that's in my mind at the moment that I think everyone should read and come to terms with is David Seckham's new book. Okay. So most people are running out and reading Carl Truman and other various things at the moment, and they're all very good. That's a very insightful. But David Seckham's book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, Jesus' Revolutionary Message, uh, is, as it happens, right in the ballpark of all the things we've just been talking about. It's, it's David's attempt to try and really summarize what the gospel is and to get, connect together the gospel of the kingdom that is so prominent in the gospels. Uh, with the gospel of justification and Paul and, and all that Ooh. kind of thing, and the gospel of the cross and of forgiveness. And the way he weaves them together, using also a lot of his research in Isaiah and in the Old Testament and in biblical theology flowing through into that, is just brilliant. It's quirky in a few places, um, like all good books. Ooh. It's It's got its angles and its things that you, you scratch your chin over every now and then. But on the whole... His insistence that the resurrection is the culmination of the gospel message, not a kind of anti-client, almost like a denouement, almost like a kind of a footnote or a sort of wrapping up of loose ends of the gospel message, that the resurrection is where it all comes together, that the risen Jesus, who is the crucified one who now offers forgiveness of sins, um, is fantastic. And he argues, in line with the kind of conversation we've been having, that the resurrection is our message, the resurrection of the crucified Saviour who is now the Lord and rules all and who calls on everyone everywhere to come to him for forgiveness of sins and to enter his kingdom and live with him as their Lord. That That's our proclamation. It's the proclamation of the risen Christ who is Saviour. And the way he draws and ties all that together and challenges the way we often think about the gospel just really brilliantly done. It pulls together a lot of the thoughts that we've all been having over a number of years yeah. uh, in a really helpful way. So I'd recommend The Gospel of the Kingdom by David Seckham, S-E-C-C-O-M-B-E. 
it'll just shake up and clarify how you think about the gospel in the most helpful way. You're not only going to say, I've, I haven't known the gospel for the <laughs> ever. You know, it's not one of those books that tries to, I've got some new secret gospel that no one's ever discovered. <laughs> um, but it ties together and expresses it so well. I would say for pastors, definitely. That's yeah. the book to grab and read at the moment. And um, for thoughtful lay readers, it's not written in a technical or overly obscure way. I'd also grab it. If there was one book, though, that I was going to suggest that every Christian should read uh, for their Christian growth, like almost like a, a back-to-basics, what is the Christian life and how do I grow in Christ book, um, I think the most underrated book we ever published at Matthias Media, this is a big call maybe, uh, is Paul Grimman's book, Right Side oh. Up. Uh, it's just a brilliant book about what the Christian life is and how it proceeds. And if you're a newish Christian or you just want to clarify in your head what the Christian life really is, um, I think it's a book every Christian should read at some point. Mm. Um, right Side Up by Paul Grimmond. I've always um, been amazed it didn't get the same airplay that other similar other books with a similar aim got. I just It has always seemed a perfect book to hand to a new Christian as part of a follow-up course. Uh, or to yeah. to do with young Christians as a follow-up course, or yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, if you want one book to work through and read through mm. with newish Christians or people who you want to clarify what the Christian life is about, mm. it's it's the it's a no-brainer for me. It's so well done. It's so well written. It's it's original. It's biblical. It's very good. Mm. So that'd be the the two books that'd be in my yeah. Head yeah. at the moment as the two I'd recommend. It's always hard though, just to recommend two. No, it's a bit like naming your favourite child, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one last one for you, Tony. What what topic would you like to see a book written on at the moment? What uh, is there something you you wish either that you could have the time to write a book on, or that you wish someone else would write a book on? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I'll I'll throw out a few because there's. I've got a long and large ideas file, and some of these are things that I'm going to do, I plan to in the future, God willing, but I've been planning to do them for a while. So <laughs> if, if someone wants to get to them first and do it, then please do. Um, I'll mention three. Is that okay? Yeah, that's, well, it's your podcast. <laughs> hey, so it is. Why am I asking you permission for? <laughs> um, I've always thought for a long time that it's funny how, especially with Two Ways to Live being around for such a long time and uh, and now being revised and re refreshed and all that, that we've never really written an outstanding or widely used book that explains the gospel using two ways to live. Hmm. We've got tracts and got various things, courses and videos. The closest we came to it was when uh, Dominic did his Introducing God course. Hmm. He turned that into a little book yep. that you could give away. Um, but it it sort of didn't take off massively and hasn't been become the go-to evangelistic book mm. and so on. So that's a book I'd love to see written. Um, I might have a go at myself at some point soon. I'd like to, but there's so many things to do. Second book I'd really love to see written, and this is what I am going to target fairly soon, and that is all the research I did about one another ministry and the word ministry of every Christian. You mentioned before how important you think it is to train and equip every Christian. Um, I think there is another significant book to be written about why that's important mm. and what role every Christian has in the word of 
not only the gospel, but the word of mutual encouragement and teaching and helping one another within the Christian community. So that's a, a book I think desperately needs to be written. And that is one that I'm hoping I'll do starting very soon based on all the research I did. And the third book, I'd love to see some smart person write. Uh, and I've thought once or twice of trying, but I don't think I'll ever get to it. I'm really fascinated by the connection between Neoplatonism, Augustine, C.S. Lewis, and John Piper. Wow. So I, I think I've got this theory that, that running through the Reform tradition, and especially through Jonathan Edwards, and then on into our contemporary Christian milieu, is a stream of thinking that owes a bit more to Platonism and Neoplatonism than it does to the Bible, especially to do with how desire uh, drives the Christian life and how our desire driving us to rise up to the joy of God mm. as the kind of whole shape of what the Christian life and mm. Christian theology is about. That feels to be, to have, a, have the smell of Neoplatonism about it. And I've often... And I've read a few things on that, and I'd have, I'd love to have time to tease out that connection uh, because I, I think while there's a truth there, and indeed, while there's a truth in Platonism, there's a truth in everything, but while there's a truth there, it kind of, when you make it your system, it it subtly shifts the way you think about things and changes the, the emphasis of your theology and then changes how you read the Bible. And you see it a lot in C.S. Lewis, Ooh. who was quite explicitly a, one of the Cambridge influenced by the Cambridge Platonists Ooh. and um, I think you also see it sort of coming out in contemporary evangelicalism in different ways and that's a book I'd love someone somewhere who's clever to write yeah well, hopefully that person might be listening and uh... <laughs> you just never know <laughs> you just never know so that probably wasn't the third book you were th thinking I would say that someone should write no, but... no that's right yeah it's just a subject I've long been fascinated by, and I've had this hunch that there's something there to tease yeah. out, but I've never had the time or space to chase it up. Well, I would read all three of those books, but uh, uh, I do think your one about two ways to live is is so true. There hasn't really been a standard handaway book since the Chapo books, since a fresh start. Yeah, uh, which were written before I was born again, uh, possibly even before I was born. I don't know, but um, uh, and. Uh, I don't think there's ever been one that's quite replaced a fresh start, is there? And, and I think not I'm, really, yeah. not really. No. In fact, I had this idea, and maybe this conversation with you will spur me into action to actually do it. I was thinking of taking a little run of painful truths between now and the end of the year, or maybe early next year, or maybe over summer, and using them to write six chapters of this book and send it round to everybody and and to see what they think Ooh. and to get to make it a community effort to try and see if we can pull together an evangelistic version, evangelist, a short evangelistic book uh, that utilises the strengths of Two Ways to Live but does it in a way that's that works for now and Ooh. is in today's language. So maybe we should make it a communal project. I think it's a great idea. Okay, all right. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Phil, thanks a lot for talking today. It's been great to catch up with you. Thanks for encouraging us and stimulating us as you always do. And all the best for your ongoing preaching at, uh, at St. George North and, and your involvement in all the other things you do. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks, Tony.